The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your highly literate Jack Russell Terriers of trivia. My name is Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. Now, folks, Heigl and I have been doing the show twice a week, sometimes more, for eight months now. And frankly, our marriage of the minds has gone a bit stale. So today, to spice things up, we brought in a third person. I'm going to stop that analogy right there. Uh, We are very, very honored to be joined by an extremely special guest, Mr. Mo Rocca. He is a journalist who is as brilliant as he is hilarious. His passionate and insightful dispatches on CBS Sunday Morning, The Daily Show, The Food Network, not to mention his books and his podcast, have long served as a reminder to me and surely so many others to stay curious. It's so important. I'm grateful for all the joy that he's given me and for all that I've learned through him. Mo Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Jordan, thank you for that introduction. I'm happy to be with you both. In addition to everything I've just mentioned, Mo is responsible for a beloved part of my televisual, if that's a word, upbringing, and perhaps yours as well, Wishbone. Yes, the little dog with the big imagination who introduced me and many of my (laughs) millennial kin to classic literature. Uh, We'll dive into the creation of this beloved PBS classic in a moment. But before we get to that, Mo, you're in the midst of the third season of your incredible podcast, Mobituaries. And for any who don't know, and if you haven't listened, please pause this right now and go subscribe. It's based on your book of the same name, which offers deep dives into extraordinary lives that have been sort of relegated to the sidelines of history, despite their fascinating stories. Are there any episodes for you that have stuck out as being the most surprising or intriguing? Boy, the most surprising and intriguing. Well, it was fun doing an episode on names that have died. The the whole podcast is sort of my kind of salute to people and things that I don't feel like got the 
proper send-off the first time around, or maybe even any send-off at all. And so it was fun chatting with John McWhorter, who's a linguist, about names that have um, come and gone over the uh, over the years. Um, uh, we focused on Mildred, Bertha, and Todd, because I had no idea that Todd really fell off a cliff in the early 1970s. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, I think if you were in high school in the late 80s, like I was, you knew a lot of Todd's. But that was the last wave of Todd's. There are no baby Todd's running around right now. Hmm. Who tracks that? Uh, the Social Security Administration. Oh, There's a website. Okay. And, they, yeah, and they they track it. And um, they don't have a lot of Todd's to keep track of. And they've got even fewer Mildreds and Berthas. But I'm just wondering, you know, old-timey names like that, it's sort of, you know, a lot of uh, – you hear about celebrities naming their kids Hazel and things like Apple. that. At, right, right, mm-hmm. right. And uh, But, but you know, no Berthas, no Mildreds, you know. So I feel about Gary. We need a baby Gary. A baby Gary with one R or two. I feel like oh. one. I feel like one. I feel like a baby named Gary is born with a bad back and five o'clock shadow and a mortgage. I was reading about, uh, as I often do, uh, the Universal Monsters era. And uh, do you know that Todd Browning, the director who did Freaks and Dracula, he made his name with one D. So exactly. it would be the, the German word for death. So can I we bring that, that back? <laughs> oh, well, he really was a freak. Yeah, he was a weird dude. Weird dude. And I was telling Jordan when he came up at one point, and I, he had one of those bizarre uh, early 20th century American man CVs that don't happen anymore. Like, he was like a star boy tenor in his choir and then became like a hobo, roustabout traveler, you know, and then in the transition from silence to talkies, uh, sort of lost his way. But a yeah, fascinating guy. God, can you imagine being able to put on your tax return hobo roustabout? <laughs> I'm going to this year. You've tried, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> well, there are just so many great stories. I mean, we, we did an episode recently on how the Grinch stole Christmas, and I love that you saluted the woman of a thousand voices, June Foray, being from outside of Boston. I loved your episode on uh, Vaughn Meter, the JFK impersonator, who uh, his career... Uh, took a dive pretty quickly yeah. for obvious reasons. Well, you know, he was so famous in that comedy album, one album of the year, The First Family, where he and some other actors portrayed John F. Kennedy and his family. And after the president was murdered, I mean, granted, Von Meter lived. That's a good thing. But he became this living reminder of this terrible day. And it was almost sort of kind of, I mean, that he lived for 40 years kind of in the desert, just walking around. The thing that I found the most sort of kind of haunting is in this old archival tape we found of him taken towards the end of his life. He mentioned walking down Second Avenue in Manhattan and a construction worker stopping what he was doing, walking over to Von Meter, just placing his hand on his shoulder, like comfortingly. And that Von Meter kind of wanted to smack the guy and say, I'm not dead, you know, but people were treated him almost kind of like a ghost. Wow, that is incredible. I mean, I, yeah, kind of downer. so many. I mean, I also I, I need to ask you just as a big sitcom fan, and this has troubled me for, for many years. Richie Cunningham, uh, Richie Cunningham's older brother, rather. Chuck, where is he? Well, I mean, all he, Chuck Cunningham, the former older brother of Richie Cunningham, did for those first couple seasons of Happy Days was uh, dribble a basketball and eat a sandwich. (laughs) And I I think he sometimes did that at the same time. But he just went upstairs one episode and never came down. And Gary Marshall, the creator of Happy Days, was kind of smart enough to know that the audience would just be okay with that, that... (laughs) 
All we needed was the Fonz. All Richie uh-huh. needed was the Fonz. Why would he go to Chuck for any advice on on dating or anything else when he had the Fonz out back? And for the record, a 2R Gary. That oh. is a 2R Gary. That is, wow. you know, some of my favorite Garys have two R's. Gary Trudeau is a two R <laughs> Gary. Yeah. And then Gary Gilmore, the serial killer, was a one R Gary that tells you something. Towards know, unified theory of Garys, the Gary cinematic universe is building. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there are just so many amazing stories on obituaries, and I didn't know until listening to an episode from this season called Death of a Working Dog that you wrote for Wishbone. It was really your first professional writing gig, and it sounds like it was a formative influence on you. You've described it as a storytelling boot camp. You said at one point in the episode, everything you do seems to come back to Wishbone, and I wanted to ask you more about that. Like, how did that influence your storytelling? Oh, gee whiz. You know, I'll tell you, in the middle of it, Wishbone, for your audience members who don't know, was a Jack Russell Terrier who in his dream life became the heroes of classic novels. It was it was a pretty trippy idea. It ran on PBS during the 1990s. You know, one of the things I learned doing it, because we would have these little focus groups of kids. And as I said, the audience was six to 11 year olds. And I remember I had the kindergarten group and it was so great to try out material with them and to interview them and realize that they would lose interest if the plot wasn't moving forward basically at all times. So you couldn't just have characters just kind of talking and marking time and bullshitting like they things had to keep moving forward, had to be really, really lean. And that's sort of the biggest lesson. One of the biggest lessons I learned in, you know, writing a script and telling a story is just how to keep the thing moving forward. Um, So that was one of the lessons. I mean, I basically was taking books for the episodes I wrote, books that, you know, I probably should have already read at that point, maybe, (laughs) but now I was getting paid to read them and boil them down and turn them into half hour versions for kids with a dog as the lead. I mean, it was completely insane, this assignment. (laughs) Well, without further ado, let's dive in. From the real-life Jack Russell Terrier who inspired the titular dog to the Herculean efforts that went into costuming the show, the painstaking process of rewriting classic literature for a dog, and the infuriating reasons the show was prematurely canceled, here is everything you didn't know about Wishbone. Wishbone was the brainchild of Rick Duffield, a producer who was working at Lyric Studios, a Texas-based production company that was responsible for Barney and Friends in 1992. After the global success of Barney, they were looking for new material, and Duffield had young kids at the time, and he felt that there was a, a certain sensibility that was missing from the airwaves. To paraphrase something Moe says in his episode of Mobituaries, there were shows that taught kids how to read, but not why to read. Rick was a big dog lover, and to amuse his kids, he often told stories around the house from the point of view of the family's Jack Russell Terrier. And this led to his eureka moment. As he told The New Yorker in 2009, I'd gotten into the habit of giving voice to my own dog's expressions and exploits around the house. One afternoon in late 1993, as I struggled to convert that impulse into a show, I gazed at the row of books on my credenza. The one that caught my eye that day was Frank McGill's Masterpiece of World Literature. Well, what if a little dog with a big imagination could take us into some of the greatest stories ever told? And why not make him the hero? And the idea had legs. With action packs, <laughs> you like that? Yeah. With action packed stories and an adorable dog, it seemed like the perfect way to make reading appealing for kids. 
The idea morphed into kind of a Walter Mitty premise about this daydreaming animal with a fairly boring life and a restless imagination. And so there would be a story set in the real world, which the dog would then liken to a story in classic literature. Duffield really saw this as the perfect time to swing big, because this is a fairly elaborate production, because the studio was flush with Barney bucks and more apt to take a chance on this cinematic children's show. And apparently there was actually an early version of the show about a bulldog named Knuckles that lived in New Orleans, which sadly didn't make it far off the drawing board. But speaking of dogs, it was time to make a pilot, and that meant that Duffield needed his canine star. In the summer of 1994, they auditioned between 100 and 150 dogs over the course of two or three days at a Marriott courtyard in Valencia, California. Though Duffield later said he didn't have a specific dog in mind when he dreamed up Wishbone, he admitted to being predisposed to the kind of dog he had at home, a Jack Russell Terrier. The same kind as Frazier's dog, Eddie, as well as Milo in The Mask and uh, the dog in The Artist. Uh, Uggy, I believe that dog's name was. I think he had two movies out that year. Um, popular dog as far as, uh, training goes, easy to train, smart dogs. As he told the Albany Sunday Gazette, uh, Duffield, not the dog. <laughs> These are great, great dogs. They have an intelligent look, the way they look and tilt their head, like they've got an idea or a thought. They're really very smart with a bright, eager, and attentive quality. The team met some high profile hounds, including those who had starred in Homeward Bound and Look Who's Talking Now. Then in walked a Jack Russell Terrier named... Soccer. We should punch in some kind of musical sticker <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> da, 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 da. Uh, John Williams should have scored Wishbone, honestly. <laughs> really piss away all that Barney money and just swing for full-scale set recreations. The John Williams score. Roger Deakins is the cinematographer. Uh, Sally Menicke is the editor. That's the, the end of my behind-the-scenes Hollywood knowledge. Um, apparently, he was the last dog of the casting session. Whatever the case, it was love at first bark. I'll allow it. <laughs> Maybe you're familiar with soccer's early work. This is where I can, we've gotten... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. No, I'm... Oh. Who's the weird Canadian dude who ambushes musicians with their old EPs? Nardwar. Oh, no. <laughs> Nardwar surprising <laughs> soccer with uh, early commercials for Mighty Dog and Chuck Wagon Dog Food. The dog was named Soccer both due to his markings, which made him resembled the checkered ball, and also his fondness for mini soccer balls. He'd recently fallen on hard times because producers thought that he looked a little too much like the dog from the Little Rascals movie, Petey. Looks like that putt's Petey. Get him out of my sight. Get him out of my office. <laughs> Blacklist him. You'll never work in this town again. Don't let uh, the door so that- hit your tail on the way out. <laughs> so now at the age of six, soccer was something of a middle-aged has-been. Or at least until the fateful day he walked into the Marriott Courtyard and blew the Wishbone team's collective mind. According to Duffield, the production crew was dazzled. He continued, I thought soccer was magic as soon as we saw him. He was so expressive. Duffield later said he had a calm, almost zen look. 
Soccer's sire was the first winner of the Russell Terrier Best of Breed Prize at the Crufts Dog Show in 1990. Is that the Golden Globes to the Westminster? That sounds uh, about right. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, so clearly he had the looks, but he also had the skills. He did a backflip in his audition that blew the producer away. The dog did a backflip? <laughs> Bring him back! Use the Bonnie money. Use the Bonnie slush fund. I want that backflipping dog. Of course, behind every great dog is an equally great trainer. Jackie Captain, the woman who owned soccer, is something of a legend in Hollywood. She coached the Dobermans that are memorably head-conked together after chasing Arnold Schwarzenegger and True Lies. By my beloved James Cameron, who went on to direct Titanic, which is coming. We are doing that soon. (laughs) Your precious large boat. Uh, Captain also worked with the St. Bernard for Cujo, and she helped Ethan Hawke bond with a wolfhound in White Fang. It's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say that Soccer, who was the dog who played Wishbone, had intimacy issues. I think it would <laughs> just been a star attitude, but we weren't allowed, very few of us were allowed to touch Soccer. And I don't mm-hmm. want to be weird about this. I mean, but like, because Jackie Captain, the amazing and with a, with her own great history, trainer of soccer, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, a real broad, she, <laughs> she really laid down the rules for soccer. And because she needed to have such a connection with the dog and she needed to be right off camera, right out of the frame of the lens, whatever, she needed to be able to have absolute perfect communication with the dog and get soccer to do whatever she needed him to do. She couldn't have the dog distracted by bonding with too many other people. Sure. So the dog could be petted by the actor who played his owner and, you know, the mother in the family by a few people and by Jackie off camera. But the rest of us had to really keep our distance from the dog. I just want to make that clear. So I didn't really bond with soccer at all. I didn't really have a real relationship with him, with the dog. Mm -hmm. I was just a writer, which probably if he were a human, he would have treated me the same way because I was a writer. Um, But we did keep pushing the sort of behaviors like we would, you know, uh, you know, I can't. I think the Robin Hood writer had him shooting a bow and arrow, mm-hmm. I mean, which made Jackie go crazy. He did indeed end up doing it because we would use prosthetics. I will say the most complicated thing I probably had him do in a script is in the time machine, pull the lever on the actual time machine. And he did manage to do it. I mean, Jackie got him to do it. They didn't have to use a prosthetic for that. That was actually his paw, I think, pulling the lever back and, you know. Hmm. thrusting himself a million years or whatever it was into the future. But yeah, there were in the red badge of courage. I think, you know, the writer initially had him handling a musket or something like that. And that was just nuts. Yeah. He wouldn't do water work. He was a real diva about water. <laughs> so in the Odyssey, we had a really groundbreaking female stunt dog. Um, her name was Phoebe. And she was sort of like our Linda Hamilton. She could do anything. <laughs> and she did a lot of stuff with water. Um, Pesaker didn't want to go around water. He didn't like loud noises. So there was a, um, I always forget his name, a dog with a face that looked like Jimmy Durante. And I'm a big Jimmy Durante <laughs> man. But this slugger? Dog, slugger, thank you. Yeah. The slugger, I think, was forced to do this stuff for Red Badge of Courage because I didn't, I don't think soccer wanted to deal with the noises that come with the Civil War. So in, in all seriousness, I don't, it's hard to think of another dog on a series that just had to do that much. I don't think Lassie did that much. And Benji didn't really do anything. And 
Cujo didn't work that hard. Soccer really busted his little tail on this set. Uh, Jackie talks about Rick Duffield giving her a list of tricks that he wanted her to teach the dog while they were shooting the pilot episodes. Obviously, you're more pause on the ground stuff like hitting your marks, looking right, looking left, back hitting away. your barks. Ha ha! We're not like pun people, but something about this episode is really bringing it out in us. Uh, then when the show got picked up, he came back to her with a longer list and she said, his little brain can only take so much. <laughs> Who among us? But by the end of the series, Soccer had learned something like 40 behaviors, which is just mind-boggling. He was both a total pro and a beloved figure on the set. Director of photography Burt Guthrie told Texas Monthly that he would hit his marks as accurately as any actor on his show. I want to go to Burt Guthrie's uh, IMDb and see who he could possibly be shading with that. (laughs) (laughs) Actors loved him because he was so expressive. One of the actresses on a behind-the-scenes clip said he made it so easy for her to tearfully tell him not to go off to war or how much she really loved him because his face always seemed infused with so much emotion. Um, His limitations did include people in wigs and beards, and he did not enjoy wearing pants for his uh for his costumes but again who among us soccer hitting his marks he would earn treats uh although sometimes things went south when he found a prop that he'd like that he would rather play tug of war than relinquish it uh between scenes he did get to hang out in his air-conditioned dressing room according to a people magazine article written by our former worker tom gliotto in 1997 soccer kept in shape for his time on camera with a diet of skinless chicken grilled and lightly seasoned and regular exercise among his only diva tendencies on set is that he would bark in the car when he wanted the AC turned on, which, granted, it was Texas in the summer. I bark in the car when I want the AC turned on. It's 50 degrees and sunny in Northern California. Sadly, soccer died on June 26, 2001, just after his 13th birthday. But Jackie had some kind words for him in an oral history of Wishbone published in Texas Monthly Magazine in 2020. Not every dog is made for Hollywood. It takes a special kind of dog that enjoys it. Soccer wasn't the smartest dog I've ever trained, but he had that willingness to please. And he had a great heart. I mean, he'd walk on water for me. Soccer is buried at the Plano, Texas ranch he shared with Jackie, or that Jackie shared with him. She liked to say in her later years that soccer really taught her. No, she didn't. Sorry, that's not binding. We're going to take a quick break. But we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So we have the dog, but now we need his voice. And this proved harder than you might think. Rick Duffield said that he was sent dozens of voiceover demos from casting agencies, but all the actors sounded like, according to him, they were doing Shakespeare. As Duffield said, they didn't stop to think about the dog. Larry Brantley, however, did. The 24-year-old stand-up comic was trying to break into acting when he got the call to audition. And he got the gig through what he called the weirdest audition that's ever been or ever will be. And he told the following story to Entertainment Tonight in 1995. He came in with basically no information about the show whatsoever, thinking that he was going to read the scene, you know, like an audition. But it was basically just like a five-minute impromptu thing with the dog. Soccer was having a break, and Rick Duffield said to Larry, well, watch the dog and just kind of follow along and see what he's doing right now. And Soccer, I guess, was obsessing over this tennis ball. So Larry did a whole impromptu inner monologue of what was going through Soccer's mind as he played with the tennis ball. And Larry thought he was just goofing around. And after a few minutes, he grabbed the script and asked the producers, you know, when are we going to start? And they said, oh, no, that was the audition. (laughs) And this poor guy left thinking, I can't believe I just did five minutes about a tennis ball. And then he got the gig probably because it was closer in spirit to the -the off-the-cuff stories Rick Duffield used to do with his family dog that had inspired the show in the first place. Larry tells this great story about being so nervous after the audition that he went up to his uncle's cabin in the Smokies, way in the middle of nowhere, just to unwind. And that's where he got the call that he got the gig. And he was on the phone discussing all the finer points of the contract and the production, you know, six days a week, 14 hours a day for a year, sounds pretty grueling. Uh, And the producer from Wishbone hangs up and Larry hears another voice on the line. Thick accent. They gonna pay you to be on a TV show? And Larry didn't realize his uncle was so far out in the sticks that he had a party line, which I mean, people probably even know what that is now. It's a line that's shared with multiple people on a block. So when you would get a call, everybody on this mountain's phone would ring and you pick it up and you hear that it wasn't for you and you'd hang back up. But this guy was so fascinated by the deal making that he stayed on the line for an hour listening to all the contract details. And then Larry spent another 20 minutes afterwards awkwardly answering questions for this guy. Like, you know, no, the dogs don't actually talk and all that kind of stuff. Many of the people who worked on Wishbone would go out of their way to say that the books were the stars of the show. But we must take a moment to salute the show's main human characters, the Talbots, whose real-world lives and desires inspire Wishbone's literary flights of fancy. 12-year-old Joe Talbot, played by Jordan Wall, lived in the fictional town of Oakdale, Texas, with his widowed librarian mother, Ellen, played by Mary Chris Wall, who I believe is no relation. There's also his quirky next-door neighbor, Wanda, his best friends, Sam Kepler and David Barnes, and the bully, DeMont. These stories act as a framing device for the literary fantasy sequences because the themes were similar to whatever the sixth grader was going through, which is a really clever way to help young viewers relate to the lessons from these books and embrace them more fully. And now we're at the part of the show that I'm the most excited to talk about, the writing. The head writer was New York-based playwright and dancer Stephanie Simpson. And I believe her Dallas-based mother taught Rick Duffield's son Joe in drama class, which I believe is how she wound up with the gig. 
Mo, taking it all the way back to the beginning, how did you first get the job on Wishbone? What was your relationship with Stephanie Simpson? So I am and was already at that point very good friends with Stephanie and her sister, Jeannie. Jeannie Simpson was on many, many episodes. She's a terrific actress. And she was uh, she actually was Joan in Joan of Arc. So she got burned at the stake. She was Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. She was in a whole bunch of episodes. But we had gone to college essentially together, um, different years. And then we were living around the corner from each other in New York, all kind of struggling as, you know, aspiring actors. And for my 25th birthday, no one remembered my birthday, my 25th birthday. (laughs) And so I called them on the, they lived above a Japanese restaurant around the corner from me. And so I called them and I said, it's my birthday. And they went, oh my God, we're so sorry. I said, don't worry, no one remembered. And I said, I'd really like an anchovy with a a pizza with anchovies. Uh, And it was, was, I was going through a phase where I really liked pizzas with anchovies. And, uh, And so it had nothing to do with them living above a a Japanese restaurant. So they ran over with a pizza with anchovies. I think it actually might have had anchovies and pepperoni. And and it was just the kind of thing they do. And that has nothing to do with them offering me a job on Wishbone. (laughs) But I just – it's just a really wonderful memory. And then anyway, then Stephanie left for what I think she thought would be like a weekend in Dallas – to kind of help workshop this idea that was sort of brewing, kind of the the idea before Wishbone, really. And she kind of ended up staying there for a long time. And she she called up and she said, hey, this is going to become a TV show. Do you want to come down and work on it? And then I came down and I interviewed with Rick Duffield, the executive producer, and then he gave the okay and they hired me to work on the show. I'd been in a production at the time I was doing musicals. I'd been in the Southeast Asia tour, the musical Greece. Um, we played Jakarta, Singapore. Who were you in it? One of the T-Birds? You know, I was Judy. Yes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were canceled in Kuala Lumpur. Um, and <laughs> then I came back and I was doing South Pacific at a theater called Paper Mill Playhouse. And that's when Stephanie called and she said, you want to come down here? So I dropped everything. I said, somebody else will have to play the professor. He only has like <laughs> one solo line and there's nothing like a dame. And then I went down there. So, yeah. So, I mean, I was lucky, fortunate. I don't like lucky. Well, I was lucky. Yeah. Was there a writer's room? It was how many of how big was the, the crew writing? There were two other staff writers, one of whom was me. And then a couple, a few freelancers. So there was no writer's room, really. In the beginning, there were three or four of us maybe sitting around, kind of hashing stuff out. But then we we eventually sort of went off into our own corners. Mm. Um, But Stephanie was supervising and often rewriting. Um, Was there a kind of code of silence among you guys when you hadn't (laughs) read any of these books? (laughs) How easy was it for you to come come to each other and be like, guys, I don't I don't know Silas Marner. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God, Silas Marner. Yeah. And I never read it. I mean, <laughs> God, I was not assigned Don Quixote. I mean, that would have broken me. It would have broken me. There's a reason I chose the time machine, which is really kind of fun. And there's a movie, right? Yeah. With Yvette Mimiu and uh, and Rod Taylor, right? Right. I think so, and, yeah. uh, and so, so that was convenient, right? And I think it's like under 200 pages. It's like, I don't like movies that are longer than 100 minutes. I don't like Broadway shows <laughs> with intermissions. I like this whole intermission list thing that's going on. And I don't like my books to be more than 200 pages. <laughs> so I was really, I really liked doing Treasure Island. I'd pitch that Treasure Island action pack sort. Uh, and then I did one of Mexican folk tales, which was a way of just saying like, okay, well, we're just making stuff up now. Uh, <laughs> and then I did uh, the inspector general. I, um, uh, Gogol. Gogol. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. It's a play. It's great. It reads really fast. It's a play. Yeah. And uh, and what was the last one I did? I'm leaving something out. Uh, I wrote five of them. And uh, it was, uh, I'll remember, eventually. But yeah, no, I, I, I could not. I, I That would have been too much to do. But Cliff's Notes, as I learned from this, there's that extra S in there. It's like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> it's really on the I just my my the, my laptop is drenched right now, but like so. But the um, Cliff's notes I realized are pretty damn good. You would have thought I've been familiar with those beforehand, but I was too lazy for that before this project. Even yeah, Jordan and I were both talking about um, on an earlier episode uh, the great illustrated classics series. Oh, yeah. Do you do you yeah. remember those? They were like chat books, but they were yeah. like but they were just the kids version of all this stuff, and then. For the longest time, I personally labored under the delusion that that was the real book. Me too. Uh, oh, totally. Imagine my shock and horror when it wasn't. Those things, I think people collect those now. I, I still have them all at home. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so maybe I'm sitting on a gold mine. They're right up next to the old Beanie Babies. I'm curious about some of the um, the folktale ones. Like, how yeah. did those come up in, as far as the pitching process? Because, you know, you mentioned it was a little bit self-directed. And then there's obviously, like, sort of the bigger, broader strokes of literature that you hit. But, like, how did you arrive at, like, the African myths as a rubric for an episode? Well, so... I mean, collectively, but really sort of led on this score by Stephanie Simpson. And this is, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Is mm-hmm. that how long ago it is? Yeah, it's in 1996. Where are we in time? Well, you <laughs> can, you, like, you can <laughs> lie too. 30 years ago. God, is it 30 years ago? Yeah, it's almost, almost 30 years ago. So, I mean, I would like to think that this was somewhat forward thinking. Stephanie wanted to make sure that this wasn't just Western canon. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And so she and the writer of that episode, Vincent Brown, if memory serves, thought it was important to do one around African folktales. And Anansi the Spider was the story that they wanted to tell. I wanted to do something that was Hispanic, that was Latino. My mother is Colombian. Mm-hmm. And I think probably somewhat influenced by doing this in Dallas and Texas, Mexican legends and folktales seemed like a good subject matter for an, an episode like that. Um, and so what I did is I took two stories, the kind of the origin story of Mexico um, with the Chichi Mex, who would eventually become the Aztecs on the shores of Lake Texcoco. And I think it's a symbol in the middle of the um, of the Mexican flag, right. right? With the eagle and the snake. I'm sort of forgetting this a little bit. It's a little foggy, but that had to do with the origin story of Mexico. And then the other great symbol of Mexico, Our Lady of Guadalupe um, and the Marian apparition there was sort of the other story. And we combined them both. So, you know, it it sounds kind of heady and it was, but I have to say it was a really fun challenge taking material like this and saying, all right, how do we make it entertaining and go down easy for a six to 11 year old? And it just was, I mean, it was kind of a sort of a dream assignment. I, I think it's like something that an English professor on acid, a writing professor <laughs> on acid would assign you. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? I mean, let's make the dog Juan Diego, the, the <laughs> peasant in the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? And uh, um, But it works. It was a great first job to have. I can't believe I wasn't after it. After that, the next year, I applied to be a writer on Boy Meets World, and they, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't hire me. I mean, after I'd written a story about the Chi-Chi Max with, <laughs> with, with, with the Jack Russell Terrier as an Aztec warrior, I mean, I, could, I couldn't write for Boy Meets World. 
I, I, I am just revisiting the show. I am blown away by how Wishbone didn't talk down to kids at all. I mean, they had some pretty terrifying moments in there with, with Joan of Arc getting burned at the stake. And in Hunchback of Notre Dame, they, they go down to the gallows. And you mentioned, I mean, in Red Badge of Courage, Wishbone with the, the little musket. I mean, was it hard to strike the balance between staying true to the source material and also uh, knowing your audience? Yeah, I think so. Like, I, uh, you know, with Romeo and Juliet, there was no suicide, you know. Uh, and I'm trying to think if there were characters, I think for Frankenstein, he was Dr. Frankenstein. He was not the monster. I think that that, that it was decided that that would just be too weird to have him as the monster. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been really weird, hard, ha- hard having the dog throw the little girl into the lake, too. I mean, that's... <laughs> <He's> right. <laughs> And, um, yeah, uh, so I think some, I, I wish I could remember some of the things that we couldn't do that we wanted to do. We couldn't, but yeah, you couldn't have wishbone. You couldn't have wishbone kill anyone. Um, the dog do that. Um, and obviously didn't want him to die. Um, yeah. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't think of, of things that we started down the path. I'm sure there were, I just don't remember. Was anything shot down? I I wish I could remember. I'm sure that stuff was. Because I saw the metamorphosis in here, and it took me a second to realize it wasn't the Kafka story. <laughs> I thought I had completely memory-holed that. <laughs> Eddie any James Joyce in there? <laughs> yeah. Wishbone woke up and found himself transformed into a bug. <laughs> that would have been great. I love that. Well, but you, I, got I him in the spider, you got him in the spider costume, so the, co- the cockroach. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you no, nothing that you off the top of your head you remember, remember was okay. I don't remember. And I'll tell you, I also need to tell you that one thing is I will never forget that the pilot episode, which Stephanie wrote, was Oliver Twist. And I remember the PBS executive coming down and they said, You're gonna meet a television executive, and this is we're all gonna have this meeting. Her name was Alice Khan, and she looked at I think a rough cut of the episode. And then afterwards, there was a like a involved discussion about the themes that had been chosen from Oliver Twist to really highlight. And then somebody turned to me, I can't remember who it was, and said, don't get used to this. This is not normally what happens <laughs> in TV, that a network executive would be talking to you about these things. You suddenly would feel like you're in a seminar and, you know, in college or something, as opposed to, I really think Samantha's hair needs to be a shade lighter. And like, <laughs> like, like it wasn't, I mean, it really was very special. My completest streak in me demands that I take a brief moment to break down the author stats for Wishbone. Eight authors have had more than one of their works featured on the show. Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Mark Twain each had three of their works adapted for Wishbone, while Jane Austen, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I should say, Alexander Dumas, and Washington Irving had two of their works featured, and Sherlock Holmes is the only character Wishbone played in more than one episode. In addition to the quality of writing on the show, we also have to talk about the quality of the production, which is extra astonishing considering the tight deadline that they were up against this thing was like shooting snl on speed with a dog on location on location rick duffield admits that he freaked out when he got the order for 40 episodes of this show due in a year and he said his first thought because as part of any good traumatic response you start rationalizing and compartmentalizing his first thought was well there's 52 weeks in a year maybe we can do this 
The problem was, this wasn't Barney with one set on a soundstage, a single group of kids, and a multi-camera setup that you could run like a play. Wishbone was both on a studio and on location. Each episode had an A and a B plot, one with Joe and his family shot in the present day, and the other drawn from classic literature. Duffield later noted, We were basically shooting two different shows at once every episode. You couldn't have actors from the Oakdale scenes show up in the fantasy scenes. Why was that? Just to not confuse, you know, it's like those are the two kids. separate worlds. Yeah. yeah. Kids are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> this show is magical. Kids are dumb. Uh, also, bear in mind, it was a new universe every episode, by which we mean one week they'd be in Victorian England. The next week they'd be with the Aztecs. So every episode required a completely different cast drawn from the local repertory actors and completely different sets and locations. All of which is to say it was hard to pull off shooting these episodes over the course of five days. They worked in a soundstage as well as the Lyric Studios 10-acre backlot in Plano, Texas, outside of Dallas. The sets for Wishbone, I mean, this thing, I cannot tell you how lavish this was. It was a lot of Barney money, okay? The family, <laughs> I'm whispering it like so that no one else would hear us. Like, the, the, the family that ran this thing had a lot of Barney money. Okay, and you know Barney had been driving everyone crazy, but the one of the residual effects of this, right, the, the, the zillions of money it made off the back of taxpayers. I mean, sort of. Well, not really. But is that they could fund Wishbone, and thank God, what a great way to use all those extra zillions of dollars. And so we had just unbelievable sets. And so I think I remember pitching. The time machine because i thought wow well we've got the money to build like a whole new world a million years in the future and they just the production designers i think chris henry and doug leonard i'm sure i'm leaving somebody out barry phillips also they just would build these crazy sets this was sort of in the early stages of cgi so there was a woman in karis turpin who was really great with green screens when this stuff was fairly new i think that they were blue screens back then mostly for compositing and creating whole new worlds but a lot of these sets were truly built from the ground up and you have to understand we built a whole back lot for the whole contemporary world for those who know wishbone of the fictional community of oakdale so there was a whole neighborhood you know built in the suburbs of dallas on this back lot for all the contemporary scenes but then for each episode and episodes were being shot like every 10 days. This was an extraordinary amount of material to be producing. We would build like Sherlock Holmes's, you know, home or in this, you know, in the, uh, the, the, the world of the Morlocks and Eloy from the time machine. Or, you know, I, I remember for Treasure Island, I wanted Samantha one of the main characters on the show to fall in love with some old barn that in the middle of the episode would get burned down. So they built a barn and burned it down <laughs> and they would just do crazy stuff like this. I mean, we were spending so much money on this. And what was it, something like 40 episodes in a year or something? Like yeah, that? It was 40, the initial order, I think the initial order may have been six episodes, but the first season ended up being 40 episodes. So it was, no, it was tremendous. And I, and I would, I would just hang around on the set because I wasn't really needed on the set, unless it was for an episode I'd written, but just watching and trying to absorb and sitting in an edit room. I mean, you guys know this, you just learn so much about how not only TV is made, but and I know it sounds awfully precious, but you learn how to tell a story when you're watching smart editors at work. So. And we haven't even gotten to talk about the costumes. 
Each episode had completely different sets of period costumes for humans and animals, and Wishbone's team won two Emmys for the 100-plus Velcro-fastened costumes that they created for the show, which not only had to look good, but also be something that Soccer agreed to wear. Remember, he has a thing about pants and hats. Costume designer Steven Chudaj created looks that included molded plastic armor for Odysseus, a white beard for Rip Van Winkle, and a plumed hat for Cyrano de Bergerac, although they eschewed the fake nose. Shooting for the first episode began in August of 1994, and remember, this was in Dallas, so Oliver Twist costumes were, shall we say, not ideal. Trainer Jackie Captain recalled, I didn't know you could sweat in that many places. <laughs> That kind of heat was probably our largest challenge because we'd film outdoors one or two days a week and you had to put clothes on a dog in July. He'd look at you like, what are you, nuts? I'm not cold. I don't want that on. Uh, speaking of the dog's thoughts, we should probably add that it was decided early on consciously that viewers could hear Wishbone's thoughts, but his lips would not be moving because CGI effects were, at that point, in their infancy and very expensive. We never had the dog's lips move. I think that was a decision that that would have been too creepy, even though it kind of worked for Ooh. Babe, the movie, right? Because Babe, the movie came out not long afterwards. But for Babe, it worked, mm -hmm. I think, for the animal's lips to move because the movie, there was something ominous about it, right? If I remember that correctly. Yeah, for which so. it would have been too creepy. So it, was, it, it worked better for it to be his internal monologue. And after all, in his dream life, He's heard by the other characters, but that's his fantasy. That's his dream. What was the Mr. Ed? Didn't they do the, <laughs> didn't they do peanut butter for peanut Mr. Butter. Ed? What? Jordan? Oh, no, this is all you. Oh, well, you, I you always have the heard honors. that for, for Mr. Ed, they just slathered his, his, his labia with peanut butter. Right. <laughs> and then they would just cut to this poor horse yeah. trying to choke down this peanut butter. And they'd be like, oh, that's how he's talking, you know? <laughs> I'm so glad we got Mr. Ed in here. Mr. Ed and Wishbone, the high culture and low culture of talking animal shows. Given the scope of production, some of the actors admitted that they had a tough time they were remembering this was all for a Jack Russell Terrier. Actor Matthew Thompson explained to Texas Monthly, I'm in this incredible costume, on this incredible set, with this interesting dialogue, working with this Cracker Jack crew, and I turn to my scene partner, and it's a Jack Russell Terrier in a costume. But once you accepted that, much in the same way you woefully accept that Santa Claus is real, then you just treated soccer like another actor. I will tell you that I don't think I was going to say, like, does this sound patronizing? It's not. It's the truth is when you shoot a show in a place like Dallas and I just finished shooting something for many seasons in Detroit. It's like, look, there are great crews everywhere. But I think they were so excited to have a show in Dallas, especially one that was produced with real money. That, I mean, people just threw themselves into this like you wouldn't believe. And the actors, there were plenty of good actors in Dallas who, and I'm not kidding here, you know, who had been on like Walker, Texas Ranger was big at the time. I think there might have been one other show in Dallas, but this is a real gift to them, especially the actors who were in the fantasy sequences. Because, right, each episode was divided between the contemporary world of Wishbone and the fantasy sequences. So they were essentially a repertory company. And you know, one week they might be playing a French nobleman in Joan of Arc, and then the next week, you know, playing a pirate in Treasure Island or, you know, somebody in the Count of Monte Cristo. Or I mean, it was, I mean, it, I think it was kind of a dream job for a lot of people. Did you ever meet Chuck Norris? <laughs> I sat 
across from Chuck Norris at, <laughs> brace yourself, Mary Poppins. I was at Mary Poppins on Broadway, and <laughs> Chuck Norris was right across the aisle from me. And he is, you know, he's he's compact. Mm-hmm. And he was with his wife and a couple of kids. I don't think Chuck had been like, please, honey, can we go to Mary Poppins? <laughs> like, I think they're kids. I'm guessing that they're kids. But it could have been maybe Chuck Norris loves Mary Poppins. Maybe he's, you know, I'm sure he's gone down a chimney or two on that series. I'm sure he didn't <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. but yeah, but um, I don't think he really liked it. <laughs> I don't, I don't, oh, that I don't makes me sad. Any, yeah. And, it, you know, they do this amazing thing where the Dick Van Dyke character, like, actually walked up the proscenium. And I thought, Chuck Norris has got to be impressed. <laughs> he was, like, walked up the side of the proscenium. It was, like, more impressive than when Fred Astaire dances around the whole room, right? And, like, the ceiling, the walls, right? But that was a rotating thing. This, this The theater was not rotating. And Chuck Norris was like, uh, hmm. no, nah, I'd rather be a Cats or whatever. I mean... <laughs> He does seem like more of a cat's guy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why he never stopped by the. Maybe that's why he never stopped by the set of Wishbone. Dogs. Huh? No. He never did. He never did. I think that Chuck Norris is probably more of a phantom guy because the <laughs> chandelier is crashing down. I mean, that's like it's really scary. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Wishbone premiered on PBS on October 9th, 1995, and the 50 total episodes aired over the course of two seasons. The show won four daytime Emmys, two for the costumes, one for titles, one for set design, 
honors from the Television Critics Association and a Peabody Award that Rick Duffield accepted on behalf of Wishbone, of whom he said, given the chance, he'd like to bury it in the backyard with all of his other prized possessions. And bodies. <laughs> it was obvious right away that the show... <laughs> oh, you like that, wow. No, I'm just, I'm pitching, I'm pitching Wishbone episodes. Uh, did they do the Vincent Bugliosi book? <laughs> the Elder Skelter? <laughs> you put him in like a buckskin shirt. <laughs> You're talking about piggies. Uh, <laughs> Duffield had received many letters from young children, parents, and teachers. He later said, we were tickled that so many college students liked the show. Some of them would write us later thank you notes for helping them pass freshman lit class. Producers sent uh, the voice of Wishbone, Brantley, on a press tour where he encountered college kids and young married couples with no kids who were fans. He said, I remember meeting an entire retirement community in a suburb of Chicago. They bust them in and they were all fans of the show. It was amazing to me. Speaking of Wishbone tours, Wishbone went on a mall tour of the United States between the first or second season, not unlike Debbie Gibson in the 80s, where he greeted his fans from a giant red armchair. According to an article in People magazine with the incredible headline, Reign of Terrier. Sock That's of the dog. good. That's good stuff, yeah. Is that Tom? I think so. Mm. Shouts to Tom Guiato, who I guarantee doesn't listen to podcasts. <laughs> Soccer the dog flew first class, stayed in four-star hotels, and had handlers who referred to him as the president. <laughs> this would result in hilarious, <laughs> presumably hilarious, I think it's hilarious, uh, hilarious scenarios when they would take him outside to do his business. The handlers would speak into their headsets, we've lost the president, when he would, for example, go behind a bush or a tree. And then when he reappeared, there would be relieved cries of, we have eyes on the president, we found the president. Their appearance at the Mall of America drew 7,000 people, a bigger crowd than the opening of Planet Hollywood. Which had actual A-list yeah. Hollywood celebrities. <laughs> Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, none of them could hold a candle to Wishbone. Mo, what was it like when the show premiered? Because on your Mobituaries podcast, you interview some Wishbone super fans, and I was wondering at what point it became apparent that this show was making a big impact outside of the realm of just children's television. You know, it, it, it started probably pretty soon after the show premiered. I don't remember much merchandising at all. So I had a Wishbone t-shirt that was just for the crew, for the company. And I remember that I would have people come up to me mothers usually and say this is the only show i'll let my kid watch that kind of a thing so i noticed that pretty early on stephanie had designed the show she was really scrupulous about it not dating so there were no episodes about the kids excited about whatever was going on in pop culture at the time like they don't talk about like um hansen is that was that in the mid 90s they don't talk about whatever was like big in the 90s um, there weren't any really gadgets, things like that. So the show didn't date. And then I started when I was on the daily show, actually, I remember one of the first things I'm just remembering this that John Stewart said to me was his mother was a teacher, I think. And he said, she loves that you wrote for wishbone and she loves that because teachers used it. So that was, I remember that. Um, and then realizing that this thing that we had, you know, anything good is hard that we'd worked so hard on and so earnestly on had kind of not a hip appeal, but had a more extensive appeal than I realized. And then when I uh, gave this speech at Sarah Lawrence College, you know, and I was kind of ticking through my own history and I was 
kind of taken aback at the response that Wishbone got. So there's like a real reservoir of goodwill, a real depth of affection for it. And I think it's probably because, you know, and this is, I think what we wanted is we were the introduction. I think that show was the introduction for many people to these great works of literature. And I did actually, I know it was always a joke with us even back then, but I did have people come up to me and say, you know, I only passed this exam because <laughs> I seen the Wishbone episode. That was always, <laughs> yeah. Well, seriously though, I mean, I know for Alex and myself, I mean, you did introduce us to all sorts of stories that really we keep close to our hearts. And, you know, we're both avid readers and, you know, we're, we're writers for a living and that's, a huge part of our own story and our own history. And there is a, a huge sense of gratitude towards you and your, your friends and colleagues for that gift. I mean, I think there was, um, I, I think it was in your episode, you said, yeah, there were a lot of shows that taught kids how to read, but very few that taught kids why. And I think that really gets to the, the heart of it for me, at least. A tremendous yeah. amount of gratitude. Well, I appreciate that. And listen, and you know, and, and one of the things is when I think about it, taking great books and adapting them for kids, for a dog, <laughs> within certain time constraints. I mean, it's just a great writer's exercise. I mean, it just is to have to do that. And also learning that a book like A Don Quixote or like Homer's Odyssey has so much going on and having to like select one theme. You know, each of these books could have supported 50 different episodes of Wishbone. I guess it, one, one of the things it taught me is how to make choices and to zero in on something and be really specific in writing also. Listen, as I said, it was a great first job to have. It's a great, it was it, almost real, unrealistically so. Yeah. Getting from the wonderful legacy and the valedictory part, can we touch a little bit on when you maybe knew things were going, the writing was on the wall? <laughs> Because I mean, you, oh, we you, good cop, it, bad cop, that right there. Yeah, I'm here. I'm. I'm not, now. Let's talk about the worst part of your history, Mo. Um, no, I. You mentioned a little bit that uh, money was flush from from Barney, and then once maybe the 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 I'm, I don't know what the accounting department at PBS looked like, but I'm imagining they got the line sheet at the end of the year and said, "You're spending what? <laughs> How much on Velcro costumes?" <laughs> So I left after the 40 episodes and there were only eight episodes after that. Mm -hmm. I left to move to LA. To where <laughs> you you rode off triumphantly. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I took off and right with the explosion behind me. Um, <laughs> um, I, uh, I went off to LA and so I wasn't around for the next eight episodes. I think that the second season lasted eight episodes. I promise you, if I knew, I would tell you, mm -hmm. but all I know is that they didn't order more beyond that. And it may have been because it was so expensive, to which I say, thank God they didn't catch on sooner. And that, they just allowed those, that they just allowed those episodes to kind of be as pristine as they are. But yeah, so I wasn't around for a dramatic sort of cancellation notice. Okay. Um, and, I, and I know very little about kind of how that went down. So now we get to the mystery portion of this program, which is why did Wishbone, the show that was beloved by fans and critics alike, only last for a season and a half? Well, it sounds like it was a two-pronged problem. As we touched on earlier, it was a complex and relatively costly production, and it was greenlit at a rare time when there was money in children's public television thanks to the success of Barney. And as a result, people with the purse strings were more willing to take risks 
but that only lasts so long. The crucial difference between Barney and Wishbone was that the former had the bonus of launching a toy empire, whereas the powers that be felt that there was, quote, limited marketing potential for Wishbone. An executive at Kenner Toys once used the term toyetic to Steven Spielberg to describe <laughs> E.T., and apparently Wishbone was not toyetic. That's a gross They word. couldn't have taken some uh, some toyetic license with him? Huh? <laughs> doing anything for you? Sure, sure. <laughs> I don't keep the little SOBs busy for another week. <laughs> the producers could have used the merchandising income to finance what was, as we said earlier, a very complicated production. Duffield later said of the show's downfall, it was money. We just couldn't finance it. PBS couldn't come up with the money. We couldn't come up with the money. And the way PBS rolled Wishbone out could have also hurt the show. The network wanted this to be a daily show, and all 40 episodes for the first season aired over nine months between March and November of 1995. And compare that to PBS's 40-episode first season rollout of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which made it through 15 months. So in short, PBS burned through the episodes quickly, which was a disservice to such a labor-intensive, meticulous show. It really should have been a weekly show like Mr. Rogers and allowed to build an audience and grow. They didn't even get renewed for a full second season, just a truncated 10-episode run, plus a full-length movie called Dog Days of the West, based on the O. Henry short story, Heart of the West. And it was just after a month-long shoot in Santa Fe wrapped in late 1997 that Duffield learned that the show was not coming back and the film would be Wishbone's swan song. And unfortunately, adding sort of insult to injury, they still had some contemporary scenes to shoot for the movie at a carnival. So Duffield took this as his big moment to address the cast and crew and thank everyone. And uh, voice of Wishbone Larry Brantley recalled him saying, we're not coming back. We tried to find the money. We did everything we could. I want you to remember this. You weren't just a part of something great. You were part of something important. They're going to remember the stories that you told and the way you told them. The final episode of Wishbone aired on December 5th, 1997, almost 25 years ago exactly. And Rick Duffield has a quote that makes me want to give him a big old hug. He said, it was very sad for me. You don't want to fire your best friends. I felt responsible for it, and I felt like I failed. I loved all these people. I still do, so much. I felt like I was hurting my own family, like I was letting them down, and it really got to me. But thankfully, or maybe thankfully, Wishbone was granted a belated reprieve recently. There was some news back in 2020 that there's going to be a Wishbone reboot movie by the Fairley Brothers, or Peter Fairley. Yeah. Mo, I was wondering what you think about that, and if you have any intel on it. Well, I know it's, yeah, it's by the, it, I think they, they, so the headline was from the makers of Green Book. And I kept thinking, is the dog going to be in the Mahersha Ali role or in the Viggo Mortensen role? I mean, like, so, sorry, so, anyway, I don't know. I, I, I know nothing about it, um, about the movie, but um, hey, listen, it, it, it could be brought back at the same caliber. I think that would be a great thing if the, if the show, um, if the series, the TV series, would be great if, if they brought that back in some way. You said, I think this might have been in a, a really beautiful commencement speech you gave at Sarah Lawrence a few years back, where when you were living in Texas, you were intrigued, at least in the in the suburbs around Dallas, because there wasn't much acknowledgement of the past, I think, were your words. And that really sparked something for you. I wanted to ask you, you more about that. That really seemed to send you on a on a journey. Well, you know, when I lived in, I was living in Plano, Texas, and nothing against the people of Plano, but it was just sort of one sort of 
pointy house after another, like a very McMansion-y. And it was kind of sterile. And it felt like anything that was like pre-Watergate would qualify sort of as like a, a historic monument or something. I mean, everything was so new. I used to go to the Albertsons there, and it was so overly air-conditioned. And it felt like that scene at the end of the Hurt Locker. Like, I'd go down <laughs> to the cereal aisle, and it was just like, why? There are like 35 different brands of, like, you know, Frosted Flakes or something. There was something kind of, I don't know, sort of soulless about it. And so then from then I said, you know, I want to know wherever I live – who lived here before me? What happened in this place before me? Just to get a sense of, I don't know, rootedness or whatever. And so then I began this thing where I just kept stopping wherever I was and looking at historic markers. Ohio has a really great state historical association. They have like little kind of brown little roadside signs everywhere. And so whenever I'm in Ohio, I'm stopping the car a lot to read them. And so I just started going around and visiting. And somehow that got me onto visiting, you know, the homes and grave sites of past presidents, like the obscure ones, the ones between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. You know, they usually have a lot of facial hair. A couple of them were knocked off, you know. I mean, one by an anarchist, the other by an aggrieved office seeker. And I would find that if I visited these homes and these sites, it was not only interesting, but the docents, the people, which is a very NPR word, I realized, but <laughs> the people that would work there were so committed to them. So I like I ended up in Indianapolis visiting the home of Benjamin Harrison, which is a very nice home on Delaware Avenue. Um, and I met this woman who was like decked out in a Victorian gown who'd been volunteering there for 22 years. And so I just was really sort of compelled by these stories and and these sites, this kind of marginalized history. And that sort of set me on my next uh, on my path, on my next path and sort of frankly kind of got me onto TV. By studying all these historical figures and, and doing the research and telling that story and presenting it to people, what was it like doing this Wishbone episode, doing that for your own past and your own history? Oh. Is that emotional uh, for you? Yeah, it was emotional. It was emotional because I really, because I, I really, um, that job and Stephanie Simpson in particular, I really considered sort of mentoring experiences and teaching me kind of how to work hard. Also, how to push through when something doesn't feel like it's working, when something's not coming together. You know, that when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high, right? Like a, a carousel. That experience of instead of going, oh, it's not working or just handing in you know, uh, which um, uh, just like really bearing down and pushing through until something works. And that's kind of where I learned that, how to do that and how satisfying that is. You know, that difference between when something is sort of 95 percent done and when it's really done. And uh, yeah, and how satisfying it can be to like, you know, write something that holds together and tells a story well. So really to be able to interview her about that and Jackie Captain about the dog, about soccer, um, and also to thank them was emotional for me. Yeah. 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 Because I didn't really, I didn't know what I was doing beforehand. I didn't, you know, you can have a fancy education, expensive education like I did and, and not know what you're doing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, before we say goodbye, Heigl, I know there was a quote from an article that you wanted to share. This was an article from 2015 written at The Toast, my beloved site that has since gone under. Uh, the writer's name is Abby Fenbert, and she is the whole gist of the piece is uh, imagining the pitch meeting for Wishbone. And thanks to Mo for taking the time. We know that it didn't go down like this. 
But uh, <laughs> I'd like to go out with a line from this piece that she wrote. Wishbone's eyes are fathomless pools of knowledge reflecting all the pathos of great literature. The suffering and beauty of humanity bled onto the page and breathed in by generations of readers, connecting them, us, in an unspoken communion of shared loneliness that both celebrates and eases our pain. This is where we see that books do more than describe our human condition. By shaping our minds and drawing us ever closer together, they create it. In a Jack Russell's Terrier's eyes. Yes, yes. <laughs> is that what uh, Peter Gabriel wrote that song about? <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time, Mo. This has been just such yeah, a blast. It's great to be with you. Thank you, guys. Oh, man. This was such a fun episode. Thank you, folks, for taking the time. Thank you, Mo Rock, for taking the time. Thank you, to Jordan, for doing most of it. I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> and I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.